This morning, uh, we're studying the book of Isaiah. But before we get there, have you ever seen um, you ever seen the movie The Sandlot? This is one of my favorite movies of all time. Do you like it? Now, if you've never seen it, just fair warning. If you, if you go uh, watch it or rent it or whatever else, you're going to find out there is a little bit of language in it. But all in all, it's a pretty good story. So just fair warning. If you sit down to watch it, you're like, I can't believe Josh recommended this movie. <laughs> just so you know, all right? That's my disclaimer. But it's a pretty great story. And it's really, it's pretty nostalgic for me because it's about this group of young boys in this small town. And they go and they play baseball all day, all summer long. When I was little, we used to go play baseball all the time, either sometimes at the tennis courts with the tennis racket, because then you could hit a home run easier, and sometimes at the ball diamond, but we'd get on our bikes, we'd get on the phone, we'd call everybody, round them all up, and right down to the ball diamonds. I mean, that, that was the summer, every summer, in a little town I grew up in, in Iowa, not unlike Milford. But this story, if you've never seen it, it's a story about a boy named Kevin Smalls. And Kevin and his mom... I don't know what happened to his dad, but he and his mom moved to this town with his new stepdad. And they get there, and Kevin is kind of pretty shy and kind of a recluse, and he just doesn't make any friends right away. Well, then, I think it's the following summer, finally, he starts to make some friends. And it starts with this guy named Benny. And Benny's this kid who loves to play baseball, and he's really good at it. And he takes him, uh, it brings him in because, really, they needed a ninth guy on their team. Because Kevin, or Smalls, as everybody refers to him, and it's probably as I will too by his last name, he knew nothing about baseball. He was worthless. He was the guy who always got picked last, and he didn't have any friends to boot. And, and so he goes with them, and he gets on the team, and slowly, over the summer, he makes some new friends. And slowly, he learns the game of baseball and learns how to play, learns how to throw a ball, all of that stuff. And over the course of the film, the group of boys, they get into a bunch of mischief, kind of like any young group of boys would. And Kevin gets to be more and more one of the guys. On the field where they played ball, if you remember, in dead left center, there's this big fence that borders a house. And behind the fence is the beast. It's the biggest, oldest, meanest, nastiest junkyard dog that's ever lived. And his legend grew with every story the boys told of him. Well, Anytime that the ball would go over the fence back to the beast, man, for just kiss it goodbye, it's gone. Nobody's risking their life to go fetch the ball from the beast. Well, one day, Benny, the hero of the story, he hits a ball so hard the cover pops off and they're without a ball, so they have to stop the game. And so Kevin speaks up and he goes, hey, I got a ball. They're like, well, go get it so we can play. And he runs home. And the ball that he had in mind was a ball that was on the mantle in his stepdad's trophy room. And it was signed by Babe Ruth. Do you want to see the rest of the story, how this plays out? Check it out.
Smalls didn't have a clue who this woman, baby Ruth, was. And when we get to our passage this morning of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, I'm reminded of that scene. That's just how my brain works. Because what we're going to see here is a bunch of titles of Jesus. Like you heard the titles for Babe Ruth. And a lot of people, when they hear these things every Christmas, you know what they do? They go, they're kind of like Smalls. Oh yeah, I've heard of him. I've heard of Jesus. They've heard his name. They've heard his titles every Christmas, right? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But they say, yeah, yeah, I know, but you keep talking about him. Who is he? Who is he? That's what we're going to talk about this morning, is who this one Isaiah prophesies about, who this one that comes at Christmas is. Because if you're caught off guard... You're going to have more than a big stomachache like Smalls when he found out about who Babe Ruth was. It'll be awful. So let's learn who he is and turn to him. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Father, thanks for Jesus, and thanks for your grace to us through him. 
Thanks that you describe who he is to us in your word. Thanks that we don't have to guess or run around not knowing and be surprised one day. I pray this morning, um, as we teach your word, uh, that you'd reveal to us clearly who he is, that you'd show us more clearly who he is. Holy Spirit, I pray that um, you would speak to and through me as I teach your word. I pray against the enemy who would love to confuse us about who Jesus is and instead make it very clear who he is. Teach us this morning, I pray, in the power of your spirit. Through Jesus, I pray all these things. Amen. This morning, we're going to talk about who he is. And turn to Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to start in verse 6. We're going to be in verses 6 and 7. And if you're like, hey, we we were here last week. You're right. We're backtracking a little bit just to kind of dive into these two verses. Isaiah writes this. Prophesying about seven to 800 years prior to Jesus being born. He says these things. He says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Sometimes I think at the end, who is he? What? Like like Ham, right? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As we unpack this passage, this brief passage this morning, you should remember that this child who is to be born is Jesus Christ. That's who he is. Don't be confused. And he's fully God. He's fully, he's fully man. He's fully God. And he will fix everything one day. Fully man, fully God, and he will fix everything. Well, first off, I want you to see this. Number one, in this passage, we see that Jesus, the child used to be born, he is fully human. He's completely human. Look at what it says. For to us, a child is born. To us, a child is born. Do you know any children who were born who weren't human? Born to a woman? No, Jesus was completely and fully human. You've got to get that. Jesus is fully a man. And that's the first thing we see in this passage about who Jesus is, is that he was 100% human. He was fully and in every way a man. John 1, 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. See, this is what you need to understand that's unique about Christianity from other religions. Is that it isn't a man who became God. It was God who became man. And at Christmas, what we study theologically, it's called the incarnation. You've heard of that word maybe? The incarnation. And I I say this often, but it's this idea of you you, you go get food and it's carne asada. It has meat with it, right? Incarnation with meat on. It's Jesus, it's God in the flesh. He puts on flesh and becomes fully a human. So let's talk a little bit about his humanity. What we saw here, he was born to a woman. He's he's an actual person. Born through an actual pregnancy. 
He was an actual embryo. There was an actual conception. He had an actual umbilical cord. He had a belly button. I don't know if Adam and Eve did, but Jesus did. I stumped you. I'll give you something to think about later. <laughs> did Adam and Eve have a belly button? It's tricky. Jesus did. Jesus did. For to us a child is born. You've heard Linus read from Luke chapter 2 over and over, right? If you turn to Luke chapter 2, we're not going to read it this morning, but the first 20 verses tell the Christmas story of how Jesus was born, how he came in the flesh, how he came to earth, and all the circumstances surrounding it. And it's phenomenal. Maybe this week you'd slow down and just read it very carefully, thinking about each verse as you do. Well, last week we talked about the fact that Jesus, this child who was born, he was born to a virgin. And we talked about it last week, but just to review a couple things about the virgin birth and why this is so important, that we see Jesus was born to an actual woman, Mary, and that she was a virgin, just as Isaiah had prophesied earlier in Isaiah chapter 7. A couple things it shows is that one, it shows salvation must ultimately come from the Lord. You're like, how does a virgin become pregnant? And stay a virgin. That's, that's not possible, is it? Well, with God, all things are possible. That's what he tells Mary. Don't, don't fear Mary. With God, everything is possible. And salvation is, is in Jesus, and it only comes from the Lord. It only comes from God. Number two, his virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. I talked about this last Sunday, but if you think for a moment of the other possible ways in which Jesus could have come, you know, if he could have just descended on the clouds, everybody go, oh, that's, that's, he's God for sure. He's not normal. I've never seen anybody do that. At the same time, if he was born through a normal conception between Joseph and Mary, and he had an earthly father and an earthly mother, biologically, I should say, we'd look at him and we'd go, what's different about him from anyone else? He's just a man. But because it's a virgin birth, he's born naturally. So we go, yeah, he's a man, but he wasn't born naturally. And we go, that's not normal. He's God, right? He was born. It wasn't conceived naturally, I should say. But the third thing, it makes possible Jesus' true humanity without inherited sin. The fact that Jesus didn't have a human father means that the natural line of descent from Adam was partially interrupted. Now, this doesn't mean that your sinfulness comes through your father. (laughs) It comes through both your mother and your father. It's just, it's for us to recognize Jesus, his, his sinfulness didn't come in the same way ours does because he didn't have sinfulness. He was without sin. It was part, the, the train was partially interrupted supernaturally by the Holy Spirit when Jesus was conceived and born. He didn't descend in exactly the same way every other human being has. Well, he was born. He's a, born as a baby. He, he entered the world just like we do. Number two, Jesus had human weaknesses and limitations. He had a human body. These won't be on the screen or in your notes, but if you want to write them down, he had a human body, right? Just like we do. He became, he became tired like I do. He became hungry like I do and thirsty like I do. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, the limitations of his humanity, of his human body were fully on display, right? When his body ceased to live like mine does when I die. When he died, his body ceased to function just like ours will when we die. 
He had a human body. He had a human mind. Luke 2.52 tells us that Jesus increased in wisdom and in knowledge as he grew. He lived just like a normal human being. He had to learn things. That means, you know what? Jesus never sinned, but he did make mistakes. His dad was a carpenter. His daddy, Joe, swung a hammer for a living. <laughs> and that's what Jesus would end up doing too. And when he le- I would bet that when Jesus learned to pound a nail for the first time, Sometime he hit his thumb. Why? Because he was a boy and he grew to maturity just like you and I do. Now, was that sin? No. Just like when you hit your thumb with the hammer, it's not sin. It might be sin when you say some of the things or think some of the things you do after you hit your thumb. But Jesus didn't do that. He simply made mistakes. He learned obedience, we learned, through his suffering he had a human soul and human emotions. In John 12, 27, Jesus talks about his soul being troubled. Jesus had a full range of emotion throughout scripture. He marveled at the faith of the centurion. He wept with sorrow when Lazarus was dead. And maybe the biggest thing is people near Jesus saw him only as a man. The people around Jesus saw him as a man. We're talking about his humanity here, right? They saw him as a man. Matthew reports an incredible incident in the middle of Jesus' ministry. Even though Jesus had taught all around the region of Galilee, Galilee is named that way for the Lake of Galilee, which is in the center, kind of like our region is named Wawasee for the lake that's in the center. So all throughout the area of Galilee, he was, Matthew writes that he was healing every disease and every infirmity among the people so that great crowds followed him. But do you know what happened when he comes to his hometown in Galilee of Nazareth? The people who had known him for many years simply didn't receive him. Matthew 13, 53 through 58 says this. Matthew writes, he says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, coming to his own country. He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, Where did this man get wisdom in these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joe's son? You know, Joe, Joseph, isn't isn't this his son? Isn't his mother Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters here with us? By the way, people who would say that Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life, well, it doesn't say anything about James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and all of Jesus' sisters being born like Jesus was or conceived like he was. Mary had more children. She, she didn't remain a virgin the rest of her life. Her and Joseph had children. And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did, they, did this man get all this? And they took offense at him. And he did not do many mighty works there in Nazareth because of their unbelief. He lived fully as a man, in other words, is what... Matthew's telling us. Wayne Grudem writes this about Jesus' humanity. He asks the question, he says, was Jesus fully human? Was he fully human? Well, commenting on this passage, he says, he was so fully human that even those who lived and worked with him for 30 years, even those brothers who grew up in his own household, they didn't realize that he was anything more than another very good human being. They apparently had no idea that he was God come in the flesh. Jesus was completely human. And and Hebrews tells us, the writer of Hebrews tells us that because of his humanity, 
Because of his humanity, we don't have a high priest who's unable then to sympathize with us in our weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. The difference? He didn't sin. He didn't sin. When I'm tempted, I give in to sin. When you're tempted, you've given in to sin. Jesus never did. But he was fully human. And because he was fully human, he was tempted just like we are. And because he was fully human, he can be our mediator, our high priest, our representative before God. He can represent us perfectly because he knows exactly what it's like to live as a human being on a fallen planet. And the sinlessness of Jesus is is taught all throughout Scripture. Now, when we read this, though, we go sometimes, yeah, but... I don't know if Jesus was really tempted every way like I am. Now, the details of his temptation clearly wouldn't be the same, right? He didn't have a cell phone to pull out and look at things he shouldn't look at. He didn't have some of the technology we have in that day, right? But in every respect, in the same ways, he was tempted. You're like, yeah, but Jesus was, he was a single guy. He, he, man, when, for me, how does he know what it's like to be angry with my spouse, He never had a spouse. Well, here's one example of of how Jesus maybe was tempted in a similar way. Do you know that after Jesus is 12 years old and he's at the temple and his mom and dad accidentally leave him there and they go back, um, do you know that his dad, earthly dad Joseph, is never mentioned again? And many people think that that's probably because then Joseph passed away at some point at a young age. And Jesus was left as the firstborn, as the oldest in the family, to be the head of the house. And so likely, at a young age, while he was still a single man living at home, Jesus would have taken on all the responsibilities that his earthly dad had. Caring for his mom, caring for his brothers and sisters. He was the head of the home, providing for them. Do you think he ever got upset? Or just frustrated, at least, with his mother? I bet he did. Well, that's just one example of how Jesus lived his life and and has experienced things in every respect, every temptation like we do. And yet he did so without sinning. And because of that, he's our example and he's qualified to be our savior. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is patient, he's compassionate towards us, and by living a life that was fully human, he can relate to us like no one else, no other God can. So number one, you should see that Jesus is fully human. Unto us a child is born, but also Jesus is not just human, he's also fully God. He's fully God. Look at the rest of verse 6. The second thing to understand, he was born fully a man, but he's also fully God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. A son is given. I'm not going to get into all of it, but really this is a reference to Jesus' deity. And to him being fully God, that his life was given to us as the son within the Trinity. Not just a child, but he's God. He's a son who's given. His life was a gift. And he had already been in existence for eternity prior to his birth as a man. 
Do you get that? I remember the first time I learned that. I grew up in the church, right? And I learned all these things and I went to Sunday school classes and confirmation classes and memorized all kinds of stuff. But I remember the first time I was in high school at some point, it was after I actually became a Christian and learning about the fact that Jesus was eternal. I mean, I know I had heard that before. I know I had memorized verses about that before and said it and confessed it before, but I don't know that it ever really connected in my head before. You mean he's always been around? Mm Mm-hmm. He's fully God. That means he's, he has every attribute that God the Father and God the Spirit do. Jesus wasn't created at Christmas. He simply stepped down into time at Christmas and put on flesh. He's, he's, he's eternal. And in fact, when did he do this? When did he step down into time? Well, the writer of Galatians, Paul tells us, but when the fullness of time had come, in other words, exactly when God wanted him to, <laughs> then God sent forth his son, born of a woman, that sounds just like Isaiah 9, 6, doesn't it? A child who's born, a son is given. God gave his son, born of a woman. Born under the law. He existed for all time. Eternity is an amount of time that neither of you and I could ever fathom. I can't get my mind around that. Yet God's eternal. He has no beginning, no end. Look at what Isaiah says then about Jesus, this God-man. He's fully human, but he's also fully God. Look what else he says about him in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. He says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Boy, you you hear about a lot of people speaking about how they'd love to have the government on their shoulder this next election, don't you? Do you hear them? You can't turn on the news or open a news site on the internet without seeing something from one of them or a new poll, or a new quote, or some scandal. Well, when Jesus comes, and really rightly, when he comes again, the government will be on his shoulder. And he's going to be a person you could elect president without any issue. You wouldn't even need a Congress at that point, because you got Jesus ruling and reigning. The government will be on his shoulder. What does that mean? Well, in other words, when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom on earth... President Harry Truman was famous for this little plaque he had on his desk. Maybe you know this. It said, the buck stops here. In other words, he took all responsibility. And when Jesus, when the government is on his shoulder, he's going to take all responsibility to make sure everything is the way it's meant to be. And everything works the way it's supposed to work. And everything, as we're going to get to in a little while, will be fixed. Everything. The government will be upon his shoulder. In fact, verse 7 goes on to speak as Jesus in this role of ruler is one day. If we get to verse 7, it says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Hey, that's a good campaign promise. You decide to run for office, you should, you should just put this on your, you know, on your slogan. Yeah, when, I, when I'm elected, man, the government, there'll be no end to the peace, no end to the prosperity. We're just going to keep on rolling. It'll be fantastic. And everybody will be like, you are full of something. No way. Right? No, but but with Jesus, that's the truth. Of his government, think about it. The increase of his government, the prosperity, there'll be no end to it. The peace when he rules, there'll be no end to the peace. Do you long for that? I do. You know, I I read some of the headlines and I read some of the things happening around the world. 
You read about terrorist attacks we're going to talk about here in a little while, just a couple weeks ago in San Bernardino, right? And you long for peace, and it makes you anxious, and it makes you nervous. Like, what's going to happen? Here's what's going to happen. I can't guarantee you what's going to happen in the meantime, but this will happen. Jesus is coming, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and, and the increase of his government will have no end, and the peace that he brings will have no end. Now, it may be frustrating and painful getting to that point when he returns, but I promise you that day is coming, and it will be a fantastic day. See, he'll reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. That's a promise made to David in the Old Testament about Jesus, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Well, who's going to do that? (laughs) The zeal of the Lord of hosts will. God will do it. God will do it. Like if Jesus ran for president, I don't think anybody would elect him. I don't either. But you know what? God's going to put him on the throne. And it's going to be fantastic. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He'll be a great ruler. He is a great ruler today. And the union of Jesus being both 100% human and 100% God This is a key doctrine of Christianity. We've talked about his humanity. We've talked about his deity a little bit, about him ruling and reigning. We're going to talk more about his deity. But before we do, you need to understand that this doctrine of those two things being together is a key aspect of Orthodox Christianity. That that Jesus is 100% human, 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 fully human and full humanity. I think that's what I was trying to say those things together. And he's also fully God. He has full deity. He's two natures in one person. And theologically, what this is called is, I don't know who made this term up, but it's kind of fun, hypostatic union, right? Sounds like something in your garage that happens. But but that's that's the doctrine of, of Jesus, full humanity and full deity, two natures in one person. Now, what you need to understand is that when, a couple things about this is that when Jesus put on flesh and became human, he never gave up any of his deity. There's some false doctrine out there, uh, and I understand where they get it from, but they would say, when Jesus became human, it's like he just took his, took his deity and said, I'm not going to be God for a while, but I'll pick it back up when I'm done being human. Uh, it's called canonic theology. But, but that's not what happens. Jesus never ceases to be fully God. Now, but when Jesus comes and lives as a man, you go, well, how, could, how can he really say he's been tempted like me if he was God? How's that possible? I mean, if I was God, I, I probably wouldn't sin either. You're right, you wouldn't, because God cannot be tempted by evil, James tells us. Well, here's how I think it to be, is to be understood. Is that Jesus, when he comes and puts, adds humanity to his deity... When he lives his life on the earth, he veils his deity. He doesn't set it aside. He doesn't give it up. He simply veils it. We just sang that this morning. Did you know that? In Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You want me to read it to you? Hail the incarnate deity. Let me go back and make sure I read the right verse to you. Um. Risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by, born that man may no more may die. Hail the heavenly prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness. He, he, he doesn't set aside his deity, but he veils it and lives fully as a man so that he could bring all of his brothers and sisters into glory with him. 
And in living fully as a man, unveiling his deity, he, he never pulled out his God card to say, whoa, hold on, I'm God. He, he didn't set it aside, he still was God, but he didn't tap into it. As, as Paul writes about it in Philippians chapter 2, he says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, pulling out his God card, a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. John, the first 14 verses of John confirm this as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he, he was in the beginning. He was God. And he added humanity to his deity. You could go into for a while why Jesus is referred to as the Word in John chapter 1, but I'll refrain from that for this morning other than to point out to you that he is God, Jesus is. And there's some titles that are laid out for him here. His name shall be called, Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. In other words, because when you hear that, his name shall be called, I don't remember anybody in uh, the New Testament running around saying, Jesus, hey, wonderful counselor. Hey, mighty God. You know, I mean, I don't remember those being like nicknames for him, but these, no, these are his titles. These describe who he is, okay? Number one, wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. In other words, in Jesus is all wisdom and knowledge. Is all wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, verses 2 through 3 talks about this that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together to, in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. And here he ends like this. He says, And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, in Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you need wisdom? Maybe you need to go to Jesus. Maybe you need to bow your knee and pray to Jesus and ask for wisdom. Or one of the things I didn't mention that I could have, Jesus being called the word, he's God's promise. Maybe you need to go to his word, to God's word for wisdom. You know, one day the Bible speaks of the future when Jesus' kingdom is on this earth and that all the rulers of the world will go to Zion, will go, in other words, to the capital where Jesus will reign and will seek wisdom from the king. You know what's incredible is you have the opportunity to seek his wisdom today. He's a wonderful counselor. There's great wisdom and strength, Solomon writes, in having many counselors and having many voices to speak wisdom into your life. And there's none greater than Jesus and his word. Do you go to the wonderful counselor for counsel? Another thing about Jesus that's written is that he is mighty God. He is mighty God. See, remember, a a child is born, a son is given, and this describes him. He's going to be called mighty God. Never make the mistake of saying Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. He's a good guy, but I don't know if he is God. He claimed to be God. Scripture claims him to be God. You, you can't say Jesus is not God and then say, yeah, but the Bible, oh, that's a good book. I just don't know if I agree that Jesus is God. Well, then the Bible's lying to you. Why would you read it? And Jesus himself is a liar. Why would you listen to him? He declares himself to be God over and over. That's why he was crucified. They cried out, blasphemy. This man declares himself to be God. And they, they kill him on the cross. Well, this term, mighty God, 
the term mighty in Hebrew is this word gabor. And it really implies hero, that Jesus is our hero, our hero God, our savior. Where is your trust? Is it in the hero, Jesus? Or is it in you? I've got this little thing next to my desk in my office because I don't know about you, but I fail to remember sometimes that that Jesus is the hero and it's not me. And I fail to remember that I can't fix people. (laughs) But I want to, but I can't. And I can't even fix myself. (laughs) Sometimes I think, why do people come to me? I'm a mess. And on on my whiteboard right there, it says, there is a savior. There is, is underlined, and you are not underlined him. There is a savior and you're not him. It's Jesus. He's the mighty God. He's the hero. And he's God. There's one confession that I had to memorize as a boy growing up, the Nicene Creed that calls him very God of very God. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made. That's Jesus. Mighty God. Amen? Philippians says that one day all will know that he's God. Philippians 2 does. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. 2 Peter 1.1 declares him to be God. Titus 2.13 calls him our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.9 Jesus declares himself to be God over and over. Here's one instance in John 8. Jesus said to them, When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He hasn't left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He goes on in, in verse 58. He says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, he doesn't say I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And they understood it very clearly that he's taking on God's personal name, Yahweh, I am, the great I am. I always have existed and I always will. Jesus says, that's me. Paul in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 gives maybe the, one of my favorite passages on the deity of Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the senior pastor, in other words. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Loved ones, Jesus is God. And I would compel, or I would exhort you to say, when you reference God, especially this holiday season, in a world, in a culture that everything and everyone can be God, name him. Not, boy, God blessed me with some good things. I really thank God for this. No, name him. I thank Jesus for this. Jesus really blessed me. They're okay with you referencing God, but find out what happens when you start talking about Jesus, who truly is God. He's mighty God, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, everlasting father. I thought Jesus was the son. Why is he called everlasting father? Well, again, this is a title, right? He shares the same attributes as the father. He's he's everlasting. He's eternal. He's always existed. We've talked about that. And his father, he's a good shepherd. He's a benevolent king. That's what a good dad is. You're like, your dad ever tell you this? 
Hey, if you're going to live in my house, I'm king. Something along those lines, like you're subject to my rule. This isn't, this isn't a democracy. This is a what? A dictatorship. And I'm in charge. And I'm the, Jesus is a benevolent dictator, basically. In other words, a really good one who dictates goodness and justice and righteousness, Isaiah says in verse 7. And literally, this phrase, everlasting father, is father of eternity. In other words, the creator of all things. That's who Jesus is. The origin of all things. That's Jesus. He was in the beginning with God, John writes. The writer of Hebrews writes, in the very beginning of his book, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's everlasting father, and fourth, he's prince of peace. He's the prince of peace. This is the one that always makes me think of the Sandlot. Because they describe Babe Ruth as the sultan of swat, the king of crash, right? Well, Jesus, why? Because he'd swat the ball, Babe Ruth did, right? He'd crash into the ball. He was the man. But Jesus, he's the prince of peace. You want peace on the earth? It's only going to come through Jesus. You want peace not just on the earth, but in your heart. It's only going to come through Jesus Christ. He's the Prince of Peace, not those things you've been searching after and running toward. Not the person you've been running after, chasing after, who betrayed you. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. It's his title. And he gives it freely to all those who would turn to him. We read from Isaiah chapter 11 earlier during the Advent reading. And in verse 6, we read this, that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb when Jesus is in control. It sounds like peace. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Isaiah chapter 11, if you want to write it down, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den and in the snake's hole. In other words, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, Jesus, in other words, he shall stand as a signal for all the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. They're going to go to him for wisdom. He's the wonderful counselor. And his resting place shall be glorious. Full of peace. He's the prince of peace. Paul writes, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what you need to know as we close here is that the third thing to understand from this passage is that Jesus... Skipped some of these verses, didn't I? We'll fix everything. There's coming a day where Jesus will fix everything. Which made me kind of sad when I saw this headline just over a week ago. After the shootings in California. God isn't fixing this. Did you see that? Anybody see this on the news? Well, I guess I would say a couple things. He fixes it when we repent and when we turn to Jesus. And the second thing, when Jesus brings perfect peace and fixes everything, you're not going to have to read about it in the New York Daily News. 
it's going to be very, very evident for all to see. And if you want peace, if you want to see Jesus fix things in your life, in this world, then I would encourage you to repent. Because of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. If you want peace, if you want things fixed, it starts with turning to Jesus. Now, it's not a magic pill. He's not the blue genie on Aladdin where you rub the bottle and he pops out. Everything's wonderful, you know? You're not going to be singing the Lego movie song all the time like everything's fantastic and perfect. No, it's going to take some time, right? But he begins that work as you repent and as you trust Jesus and as you turn to him. And he brings peace to you. And he, he makes you new right away. But then he takes you through this process to where one day when Jesus comes again, it'll be complete. It'll be complete. You'll be fully baked. And you'll have perfect peace. But if you don't trust Jesus, you're probably going to end up like Smalls. With a pit in his stomach when he finds out who Babe Ruth really is. When you find out who Jesus really is and that you had the chance to trust him and you didn't. Literally, there's hell to pay. But Jesus has paid it for you. And he longs to be your Prince of Peace. Turn to him. Let's pray. And then we're going to take communion together and sing and take our offering and call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks that he truly is the prince of peace. He's the one who who brings peace to my life. He's the one who will bring peace one day to the earth. Thanks that it's not on me. Because I fail at that. Father, I pray for each of us this morning, for those of us who've trusted your son, recognized him as fully man and fully God, who died on the cross in our place for our sin. Help us to keep our eyes then on him because truly he's the ruler. Truly this is his world and we're here to serve him and he's the one who gives us peace and counsel and is the savior who rescues us as our hero. And for those who have never trusted you, maybe, maybe they were like me. They, they went to church most of their life and they knew all the stories and, uh, but they never just, if they're really honest, knew Jesus who you were and never truly turned, repented from their sin, which just means to turn and turn to you so that you would begin the process of fixing them so that you would save them and begin the process of making them new and giving them peace. I, take, I pray today might be the day that they would do that. Holy Spirit, might you work in their heart in that way today. Father, thanks for your son. Thanks for your grace and mercy through him. I pray all this through him.